0: Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host Byron Pace. It is the 7th of August 2020. Today I talk with TV host and eco-journalist Sarah Roberts about her journey from studying animal behaviour to writing environmental children's books and appearing on the famous Blue Peter. We dive deep into the plastics in our oceans and the complex relationship between shark researchers and recreational fishermen. Somewhere in the middle of it all, Sarah tells us about the time she was bitten by a shark. It's a really awesome show and I had so much fun recording with Sarah. But before we jump into the episode, I need to give a shout out to this week's top tier patrons, which include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Josh Darling, Sean Rowan, Thomas Cameron and Mark Zabrowski. If you want to help support these shows, head over to patreon.com forward slash Pace where you can help make these episodes possible for as little as $1 a month. Now, uh, two weeks ago in our competition to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, who are, of course, our partners on this podcast, we asked you to rate or review the show. And the winner, getting a choice of volume one through to five, is Aquatic Man, who left a review. Well, that is, that is I don't know if you're actually called Aquatic Man, but that is your name that you left, <laughs> in the review, uh, and the review was left on Apple Podcasts. So, thank you very much for the kind words. Shoot me an email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and I will get uh, whichever copy you want out to you. For this week's show, I want to enlist your help to help get this podcast in front of more people. Simply share the show with a friend or tag me uh, or share them with a friend and tag me on social so that I know that you've done it uh, or you can stick me on an email if you want if you don't use social and I will pick the winner at random in two weeks time to win another copy of Modern Huntsman. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Byron J Pace and on Facebook at Pace Brothers Film all modern huntsman volumes are now shipping so if you would like to order your own copy if you haven't been lucky enough to win then head over to all the w's modern uh, if you're in North America and rest of the world, if you want to order a copy, you can do it through our website, which is thepacebrothers.com, and just find the shop, and you will find a page dedicated to modern huntsmen. Now, a little preemptive side note for something we discuss at the end of the show, when we're talking about using crushed basalt rock on agricultural land for extracting carbon from the atmosphere— the technique, which is known as enhanced rock weathering, involves spreading finely crushed basalt, which is a natural volcanic rock, on fields to boost the soil's ability to extract CO2 from the air. Now, the science behind this is pretty straightforward, but I will leave that for one of our science shorts shows so that we can dig into it in more detail. Or if you want to read about it right now, simply head over to uh, thepacebrothers.com, uh, find this episode and All of the details will be in the show notes and you can find the article where the original paper was published. Uh, But I made a little mistake at the end because off the top of my head, I thought that the the amount that I had recalled was 200 million tons of CO2 a year, which could be extracted from the atmosphere. But in actual fact, uh, the recent research suggested that it possibly could capture between 500 million to 2 billion tons of CO2 per year. Now, by way of comparison for these crazy numbers, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change requires the active removal of between 2 and 10 billion tons of CO2 a year. So this potential technique and use of basalt on agricultural land has the potential to go a long way towards this. Anyway, it really is fascinating, and I would like to do a short show on it, Uh, so I will leave it right there and the last thing i'm going to mention before we jump into this episode is don't forget that on our shop uh, you can get 15 percent off if you're a podcast listener by simply using the promo code into the wilderness on all modern huntsman products sarah welcome to the into the wilderness podcast i've been keeping tabs on you the last couple of days or last week i think um, through your instagram stories you've been all over the country
1: Yeah, I've been wandering a little bit. (laughs) Yeah,
0: a a bit of freedom after lockdown, I'm guessing. Well, after like the very strict lockdown.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I don't know about you, but I think I was suffering with a little bit of cabin fever over that period of time. So pretty much um, took the opportunity to go down and visit some friends in Dorset and get some ocean time. Um, and then uh, feeling out a few things on the work front, and then actually had a really cool networking um, uh, networking holiday. I want to say because it ended up much more play than work um, over in Pembrokeshire as well. Um, so yeah, just getting as much outdoor time as I could get, really.
0: Ah, oh, tremendous! Yeah, you so you were. I saw you. St- were you swimming or boating in the ocean and swimming in the in a river somewhere yesterday? Yeah,
1: lot, lots of... Uh, you know the water's swimming. cold
0: here, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be honest, the ocean swimming was probably the coldest bit. But it, we had the novelty of um, this amazing human being who had developed hats, puffin hats, where he could swim really close up to puffins and had like floating decoys. so uh, What? Decoys, yeah, who can resist that? You have to get in the water, right?
0: Were you doing this, it, 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 was this something that kind of turned into work or were you just doing it because that sounds awesome?
1: Um, well, uh, we were, it was a few of us together and Lizzie Daly had, uh, had oh, yeah. arranged it. So yeah, we were just sort of uh, going with the flow and enjoying swimming with seals and uh, having a lot of banter actually, mostly more than anything else.
0: Did you get close to some puffins?
1: Um, well, one nearly flew over my head, but apparently I wasn't looking the right direction. I was too busy looking at the seals. But yeah, he, well, that, that guy takes, um, some amazing pictures. Um, but, uh, there weren't, there weren't that many puffins where we were particularly that day. Um, Is it bad to say I was mostly looking for spider crabs at the time, (laughs) (laughs) and then we ended up uh, mackerel fishing after that? So oh, um, good. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I always like getting some mackerel in the freezer at this time of year for the rest of the year.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We um we were intent on trying to catch something, um, but I mean our luck wasn't always quite there. (laughs) As is always the fun with nature and wildlife. Mm,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I. I really wanted to start this interview by asking you about um, a British institution, really, which is Blue Peter. As I was reading <laughs> up a little bit about you for this podcast, I was like no freaking way, you've been on Blue Peter now for. I mean, a lot of our listeners don't are not in the UK, uh, and so I should probably just explain. I think Blue Peter is probably the longest-running children's uh, sort of educational uh, children's program on television here. And uh, you you were on the show. Explain that to me. How did that come about?
1: (laughs) No way. Okay, so so you
0: now, if I remember rightly, it has been a very long time since I watched Blue Peter. You now need to make your way up to. Yeah. well eventually gold uh, right gold is like the pinnacle that's that's like getting uh an mbe basically yeah
1: that's like David Attenborough level <laughs> yeah repeater isn't it yeah you have to go on I don't know how many times before you're allowed a gold badge um but yeah it was basically it, it came about um to talk about mostly to talk about my book and to talk about um plastic in the ocean at the time but not just plastic in the ocean as also, explaining about how plastic can affect animals in totally different ecosystems that you often do not place or associate with plastic, for example, um I was kind of going through the links of how plastic can actually affect grizzly bears um so it was it was a lot of fun I mean it. It's a different setup filming in studios, though.
0: Than what I'm Because <laughs> you're always to out in the that. wild somewhere. Yeah,
1: I am, and I think a lot of the a lot of the filming and storytelling that, that I do, it's never scripted. It's always off the cuff, and um, yeah, there's a lot of a, a lot of pressure when you've got a lot of big lights shining on you and huge huge cameras. Um, but oh, it was an experience. I went on. Um, Newsround
0: as well. I was just going to ask you about that because yeah. that was the that was the other <laughs> thing I remember as a kid. I'd like come back from school and then you your mom or dad would like shovel breakfast breakfast dinner like in front of you, and you'd sit and you'd watch Newsround and Blue Peter. And Newsround was like a, a it's a kids orientated and friendly version version of the news basically
1: yes very professional in fact i feel like yeah. most good news reporters started their career in it's drag.
0: amazing actually <laughs> like how many really hard hard-hitting news reporters today started there you're absolutely right
1: yeah, and Blue Peter as well. I mean, when we were young, Blue Peter used to be, as I would say, the window to all opportunities. Like, quite a lot of the Blue Peter presenters that we knew in our youth are still all in TV nowadays, aren't they? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, what was. Uh, were you covering similar kind of stuff on Newsround?
1: Yeah, yeah. Same, 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 but different. Um, yeah, it was. Basically about, well, actually, I think I diver, divulged a lot into sharks by this point. <laughs> now I think about it, it's mostly, yeah, sharks and shark adaptations. And then, yeah, somebody swallowed Stanley as well. So um, a little bit of everything that I've been doing for the last few years, I guess, before that.
0: So how did your, um, how did this children's book come about?
1: Well, Stanley actually was first conceived um, in 2013. I would say so. Just on my return from working in the Bahamas at Shark Lab, so I, I was working on this tiny, tiny little island doing shark research. And cool. one, we're going to we're going to come back yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that I'd noticed there was every time the weather changed, even though it was a tiny, remote place, you just get loads and loads of plastic on the beach. So um, I was taking what I'd learned in the field into schools by this point um and um started a bit of an outreach program and I was trying to think of a a more fun way to talk about these topics that are often pretty daunting and you know for children in some in some cases kind of boring (laughs) or they had been when we'd been taught about reduced reuse recycle in school um and then um yeah Stanley came about as an answer to that I'd kind of wrote it in the first place very tongue-in-cheek quite sarcastically Um, and then after a few years of of going into school and like selling more copies I think originally it was self-published it sold just about 4,000 just over 4,000 copies Um, and then that's amazing
0: for being self-published
1: yeah I mean that's he was yeah I mean uh, well do you know what at the time it was pretty much it seemed like the only option because nobody wanted to talk about it I mean I stupidly sent it off with grand ideas like this would be great in the supermarket I had Stanley's better looking cousin which is a bag for life with um yeah a little slogan on the front and um so, is
0: Stanley a plastic bag?
1: Stanley, spoiler alert, yes. So, Stanley is no ordinary jellyfish that basically floats around the ocean. He gets chewed up, swallowed, and spat okay. back out by lots of different creatures. And then you get clues along the way as to which, what creature has swallowed him, and the kids have to guess. And then at the very end, there's the big reveal, and he gets um, upcycled into something else. Um, but, yeah, I ended up um, not really getting that much traction in terms of, of – publishers or supermarkets or anyone, I think one of the best comments I got was it's far too scary for children. <laughs> and then um, good old Attenborough and and the trends and the fashions and the hard work of so many scientists and so many people that have been advocating more educational plastic pollution sort of came to fruition, didn't it, a couple of years ago. And there we are. Plastic became a, a really big thing. Um, I was lucky enough to be introduced to scholastic and now... The book's actually out in, I think, over 30 different countries in lots and oh, lots wow. of different languages. And yeah, so he's, he's making waves abroad now. It's really weird. <laughs>
0: that's that's incredible. That's incredible. So if if we rewind for a moment, because uh, we've been talking about um, TV, Newsround, Blue Peter, book published... Where did this start for you? Is this something that you studied? Uh, Was it, you know, zoology or biology? What was your, what was your in into this fascination with, with nature and then pursuing it as a career?
1: Um, Yeah, so my degree was actually animal behavior. um, And I specialized in um, olfaction and electro sense in sharks. Um, And then Kind of from, I mean, I guess before even doing the degree, I already knew, as a lot of kids do, that I wanted to work with animals. So, like, throughout the degree, I also um, worked in a few different field research roles and worked um, in the zoo as well. Ironically, in the education department, which was probably the thing that gave me the foundation uh, for the communication side of what I do. Um, and then, yeah, straight off the bat from from uni, I ended up... Um, Working with dolphins in in the Welsh Welsh coast, and then going to the Bahamas to work with sharks out there for a while. And I think that's a,
0: that's a slight slight change in environment. Welsh coast, the Bahamas. Yeah,
1: yeah, especially because it was straight after uni. So the Welsh coast yeah. was was very much horizontal rain sat on a sea <laughs> for about three months in the, in the depths of winter um yeah and then I guess like the more well actually I'll tell you what there was a moment um I was in I was in the Bahamas I'd always wanted to to be a naturalist I'd always wanted to to make videos but I didn't really have the balls to do it because mm. you know you get through that it takes and- a lot
0: to like look into a camera and like, yeah say say um, stuff in a confident manner and not think that people are going to think you're an idiot even if you're key, even if you're not
1: is <laughs> is yeah. the what other people think part i think that holds us back from doing anything yeah. fun most of the time um but yeah so i i was actually um and um, we had a lot of camera crews that would go in and out of the field station um and i I was working as a safety diver um on one of the shoots, which basically involves sitting behind the cameraman and pushing all the sharks away while they film whatever they're trying to film. And then ended up in the local bar with them afterwards. And I think after a few rums, I spilled out my inner secrets, which was, I really want to make content, um, but I don't dare to do it. And he he the camera guys were so supportive that they put me in touch with an agent in the UK. And that in turn actually spurred me on because she was like, yes, this is a great idea. However, we need to see how you can cope in front of the camera. So that spurred me on to make the first film reel, which I was only able to make because we were really, really busy out there, but because I, I'd had that small slip-up with a shark where it bit me. So I uh, Ow. actually, uh, yeah, <laughs> well.
0: Where did it bite you?
1: On my arm, on my arm. Um, it was my own fault, um, <laughs> but we, yeah, I think I was like bite number 56 at the lab or something by this point. Oh, uh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good time to find out there's no doctor on the island as well. Um <laughs>
0: So, I mean, how much, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, how much damage was done to your arm?
1: Um, was it
0: through a suit, or through a wetsuit or?
1: No, I was in a bikini, actually. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> no, it was a one meter lemon shark. Um, so, it's left mm-hmm. a pretty gnarly scar. Um, it went it went down to the fat layer. I was pretty lucky. It's it's actually in the chunkier bit, I guess, of my forearm rather than towards the, to the, you know, where all of the important areas are near your wrist. Um, I went down to the fat layer and sort of opened everything up. And then, um, we, yeah, as I said, we found out afterwards while well, I had this really professional bloke poking around, umming and in, who then declared he was a dentist. Um,
0: so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, arms are kind of like teeth.
1: Yeah, I think he was just more, <laughs> more curious because he'd never seen a shark bite before. And, you know, this great big Caribbean bloke, happy and jovial, like, oh, man, yeah, look at this. Wow. <laughs> I was like, okay, but do I need stitches? Or well, I don't know. <laughs> what? Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah, so yeah. So that was where technology really came into its own. So there was a, a whole Skype session just featuring my arm. Um, the guy that owned the lab, his daughter um, lived in the States and that was a plastic surgeon, I think. Um, So basically, with the limited um, (laughs) stuff that we had, iodine and peroxide, it was a case of boil water, hold your arm in in peroxide for 10 minutes um diluted in in the boiled water and then the same with iodine and you had to repeat that three times a day so actually getting bitten doesn't hurt that much compared to cleaning a sharp back Ooh, room yeah um yeah and then it just was eventually after about a month or so started knitting itself back together which is yeah i don't really recommend i think you are probably better go into a doctor like in hindsight but mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so but anyway. Need,
0: needs must. I mean, you need to put your arm back together.
1: Exactly, exactly. It did the job eventually. Uh, but because of that, because obviously gangrene risks and the rest, um, couldn't really go in the water um, for a little while, which left me with this time to actually start filming some things. And that was why I was able to film my first film reel, which is funny because when you watch it, you'd never know because I've got a bandage and then cling film around the bandage and then a rash vest over my arm but if (laughs) you look closely at my facial expressions while holding that small shark, you can see I am mildly uncomfortable about the whole situation
0: (laughs) so how long ago was that god
1: that was 2013 so okay a while ago and then since then I ended up working um all around the world, I guess. I worked in Africa um, in the middle of the bush with dwarf mongoose of all creatures. Um, and then I uh, worked um, as a grizzly bear guide in Canada for a bit and the whole time just sort of filming as I went. And then then the filming and the storytelling took over and now I'm in a position where I'm really lucky. I can work with a few brands and things to actually go out and just source the stories and, and meet the people and probably not slow them down by them to train me up to maybe not quite be there as long as they quite want me to be if I'm only there for a year or so. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's good really. All's good.
0: That's amazing. So were you doing, uh, were you sort of, tagging along with research projects is that was that your uh sort of foot in the door to a lot of these places
1: absolutely yeah so um for for most of the jobs i would go as like a field research assistant which was great for me because it's very hands-on it's it gets you and puts you into these close encounters with wildlife and Uh, you know, you you actually experience so much more than you would otherwise, especially like in Africa, because all our research was sun up till sundown on your own in the bush on foot. So you'd see all sorts of things. Um, And then I, I sort of, Veered out of that because field research is uh, terribly unpaid <laughs> career to go really into, is, So yeah. necessity. Call. So important, but so, so important. underfunded. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's a whole other story. But yeah, there, there needs to be a lot more money get put into um, that world. But um, yeah, then I, I sort of spurred into guiding all came about because I was I was sketching an idea for another book which involved grizzly bears and I thought well I've never seen a grizzly bear Then I found a found a job on the internet and thought well why not
0: <laughs> just making it happen
1: yeah yeah took a punt <laughs>
0: So you, so then you got on a plane, headed over to Canada, and now you're a grizzly bear guy. There must have been, uh, there must have been a little bit of training involved in that. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, there was quite a few moments early days where I thought I'd definitely bitten off more than I could chew. There, I mm. think my boss was a little bit of a joker hiring me, but I did. I sent a very, very cocky. Um, cover letter that I would cringe at if I had to read back now, but <laughs> at, at the time nothing to lose and, and thought well, yeah. why not, um, I think it was something along the lines of having worked with one of the most dangerous predators in the ocean, I think it's about time to encounter one on land with claws and and <laughs> fingernails, some sort of rubbish you must have thought, oh god yeah, she'll be hilarious to watch, struggle through this, um, but yeah, I, I, yeah it was great actually I went out there, I had to do two week wilderness um first responder course first which really really sort of puts into perspective <laughs> how I should have cleaned the shark bite wound but also um you know what can go wrong in these situations because you are out on a limb if you're we were on a floating lodge you could only reach by seaplane and we the only lodge in the inlet so um, yeah, and then, you know, there was quite a vast amount of training before you were able to take guests out. Uh, one of which is you had to read a book which was Causes and Avoidance of Bear Attacks. Highly recommend if anyone's got a bit of morbid curiosity, but it pretty much documents in very fine detail every single bear attack since I think it's like the 1950s oh wow something. yeah the revenant is accurate I'll tell you that <laughs>
0: <laughs> great film great. yeah so who, who were you guiding like was it just people who want to see bears or, or was it other trips that they were on um more sort of no. protection against bears for doing other things
1: no no so that particular place um it's it's called Great Bear Lodge um and it's in Nickout Estuary and it was very much uh ecotourism operation so you had a lot of um, people that, you know, it was their lifelong dream to come and watch grizzly bears and the salmon run. we get the odd film crew through too, um, but for the most part, it was just really, really lovely people that had finally got this opportunity to come out and, and encounter grizzly bears in the wild. So they came from all over, from Australia, from England, from Canada, from America, and essentially it's your job to do your damned hardest <laughs> to make sure they see a bear, which... You know, some seasons are a lot harder than others. Um, with that, <laughs> but you do your best.
0: So you're actually taking them on foot and tracking. I'm assuming you you must be armed for protection as a, a last resort.
1: Yeah. So uh, it's so funny the amount of positions. So the amount of positions that have been in where you are essentially on your own on foot, and it seems to me that that the defense mechanism is always the same whether it's africa or or here or over there it seems to just be pepper spray mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, so that yeah, was it. yeah you've got very con um, concentrated version with the bears you get bear spray with, yeah. but yeah with africa on foot um, in case you saw a lion we had we had pepper spray too mm. <laughs> so yeah it's uh, you just don't really want to get to that position but no absolutely I mean, not the thing about the grizzlies it was actually 50% on boat and 50% on foot so you're actually in a small rowing boat um or out of a small rowing boat for half of that pulling it along against the current and hoping to god the guest would look at the bear quickly so you could get back in before the boat floated off. <laughs>
0: Oh, what, it must have been amazing to spend so many times with this incredibly charismatic animal, and also to see the salmon run. Yeah, I mean, we have salmon here where I live up in Scotland, obviously, and I've seen salmon in other countries, but to, I've never seen what we're talking about here is one of the greatest migrations on earth. Essentially, yeah. And I've, uh, I mean, I've obviously witnessed it through my TV screen, but I've never seen it in person. It must be incredible.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really. It's incredible. It's also quite smelly um, and it's also like the realisation of what these fish actually go through is phenomenal. I mean, their sense of smell to be able to to find water droplets from the river that they, were, well, they hatched in the middle of the ocean and then to follow that concentration all the way back to this river. I mean, the one thing I didn't realise before I got there was just how much effort these fish actually put in. I mean they they do they don't actually eat um during their stretch up river Uh, for the most part their whole energy goes to swimming against the current so their body actually breaks down all different internal organs even their skin sometimes even their eyeballs so like when they actually get right up to the top when they're spawning they're basically zombies um and yeah and of course the appreciation for how important that is in the ecosystem because the trees around the edge of the river, they're so much larger. Uh, even the mule deer are actually eating the salmon. Um, so they support so many different species. Um, but what's crazy is just how small those salmon runs are now becoming every year. Um, and like most of that, unfortunately, comes back down to human impacts. So yeah, it's, it's, um, It's just yeah, really, really important part of the uh, ecosystem.
0: To to replace that level of nutrients that they gain at sea in the ocean that gets dragged all the way inland, like you're explaining, that goes into the the trees and then the bears eat it and then there's a whole heap of other scavengers that that go to get that level of, of nutrients all the way inland to be able to replace it. It is nigh on impossible without the salmon runs
1: yeah and you know we've tried so many different things um whether it's it's hatcheries for example um trying to offset it by by sticking in extra salmon for recreational fishing i mean the problem that you then have is you've eliminated um, natural selection, so you get these fish that come in that are, have been grown in optimal conditions, that then get put into the river. They're larger than the naturally selected, you know, wild salmon that are there, so they out compete them at an early age. Uh, but they don't find their way back to the river because quite often they'll die at sea. Um, so then that also has a detrimental effect on on the salmon that you know would have been hatching otherwise. Um, you know, and then we've got the situation with overfishing um plastic pollution also has an effect you've got the fish farms we've we've tried a lot of things to try and um you know really manipulate the system to our benefit but actually i think there's there's a certain level where you have to really just have a respect for nature and think maybe it's time we take a step back and just let it recover on its own Mm.
0: the amazing thing is with with something like a, a salmon run and their their life cycle if we did give it the space
1: yeah to, oh, to yeah. recover,
0: it would recover really quickly, and we've seen pockets of that before.
1: Yeah, uh, but yeah. but we
0: just we, it we, it's under so much pressure continually, whether that be uh, inland environmental restrictions like the building of dams. Or whether that be the over harvesting at sea, I mean there is a the, the other element which is sort of the the umbrella of all of this, which is changing sea temperatures changing yeah. sea temperatures and yeah, climate yeah. change, which yeah. is a very complicated web of uh, of food systems which will be impacting it in ways that we even fully don't understand now
1: absolutely um, but I mean, it can
0: recover it is, like it it is possible and we have shown that it's possible
1: well i mean i've actually been um speaking with a few different professionals on this topic recently for another um another job of mine um and there's there's so so much new finance, so much new research but so much we still don't know um i mean Basically, it seems that the the salmon in the north are, and this is sort of the north coast, I'm talking America here, um, the northwest coast, seems to be better adapted to the change in river temperatures, I guess, than the ones in the south. Um, And also, you've got situations where like natural landslides happen, and we write off the fishing populations, but then what happens nobody expects but the salmon actually come back stronger and stronger each year instead we we just wrote it off as a dead river um so nature to quote Jurassic Park will find a way um uh, but it, <laughs> uh yeah quite often it needs us to sort of Give it
0: space to do that. Um, let's talk about um, pla- plastic pollution a little bit. I've clearly not had enough coffee this morning because that's about the third word that I've tripped over. Um, <laughs> pl- plastic. You mentioned plastic pollution right uh, right at the start, and I know that was a, a major focus. Of course, that was one of the things you were talking about on uh, on Blue Peter. So, what um, w- what was it that really drove you to dig into that as as something that you ended up gaining a, a huge amount of knowledge about?
1: Well. I mean, in the very first place, I obviously, like everybody else, knew that litter was bad. You know, I would you'd go to we understand that from a young age, exactly from a very young age. You see, you see it washed up. Well, we should, yeah, you should. And then, you know, I knew that animals and wildlife could get entangled in it. I knew they could eat it. I knew those obvious things. Um, But I guess I, when I started going into school. You've you've got that pressure to be much more educated than whoever you're teaching, (laughs) haven't you? You've got to be one. So pick really
0: young kids. That's what I (laughs) pick really young kids, and then you just seem smart.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's always one that that has the questions you really never expected to come out of a nine (laughs) year old's mouth. Yeah. So uh, so that pushed me to really start reading um, actual science papers and and looking into much more depth and. I guess when I started to learn more about the microplastic situation and then not just the microplastic situation, but also how plastic behaves in water, how it bonds with heavy chemicals, heavy metals, um, and then just seeing paper after paper. I mean, I found it super frustrating knowing how, I guess, knowing how screwed we were in 2013 and 14 and so many people they were still doing balloon releases. Nobody wanted to talk about it. That's
0: crazy, and, isn't it? And you're
1: you're kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, like the whole machine is broken here. I don't know how to stop it. It's like a, being on a train and not being able to pull the stop cord. Like, I guess it's it was so ridiculous to me that this was such a huge, huge, hugely important topic that had the potential to absolutely screw. Not just like one ecosystem, but the whole planet. I couldn't, I couldn't sort of fathom why we weren't talking about it more. So that's why I've put a bit of time into to create Stanley, just hoping that it would suddenly become a bit of a penny drop moment for people, and also an easier way to introduce that into class, and and then teachers could build on that. Um, but it, I was saying it was frustrating for me finding out about microplastics and all of that information in 2013 but the papers that were published on this they were dated back 20 years you know it's, it's not new knowledge um that's why we always talk about plastic in the ocean because there's so much more published on plastic in the ocean but i mean doing that wilderness first responder course one of the the, the sayings that they used to use was uh, dilution is the solution to our pollution and, and that was looking at, you know, snake bites and all sorts of things. But actually, you put that to this, the oceans are the biggest, largest, most diluted place on Earth. And if we've got a problem there, we need to be looking in soils. We need to be looking in streams. We need to be looking in lakes. Because... It's going to be affecting everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I can't imagine the frustration that scientists must have had for all that time knowing what they know. And it's you know it's just the same with climate change and every other topic. So I guess for me then I've made it a bit of a mission to try and help these scientists as best I can to communicate it to the general public in a way that appeals to people that maybe otherwise wouldn't be interested.
0: Yeah, you kind of hit on a really key point there, and it's. Uh... It's much more well known and kind of accepted as a a job now, which is exactly what you're talking about, which is science communication. Yes. There's a lot of, you know, I know a lot of really brilliant science communicators uh, around the world, but there's no point doing the research if no one really knows about it who's going to act upon it. Yeah. Case in point. Yeah, the <laughs> the research has been done on plastic. So, having a way to break the break that research down in a way that's consumable for your your, your average person, so they can understand the true impact of what that means. And, and selfishly, it almost has to be what it means to their lives. Absolutely, um, yeah. For many people to actually take a take a stance or, or make a change.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. You you have to you have to look at look at the situation unfolding and then just find like. You almost have to figure out a new way of shining a light, presenting it in a totally different topic. I mean, the book I did, it, it's all presented from Stanley's perspective because at the end of the day, the carrier bag isn't really the bad guy. He didn't want to end up in the ocean. It's our fault for dropping him in there. So you, this poor bag that gets chewed up, swallowed and spat back out and you feel really sorry for this jellyfish. It's no ordinary jellyfish all the way through. And and I think it's, it's trying to, I guess... Retell the stories in a way that people can relate to uh, for their everyday lives. That's that's one of the hardest things, um, because you know if people if people don't feel like they're a part of it or it doesn't affect them, then they you know they're less inclined to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, I think that what we're going to see. I mean, we are already seeing because I've seen images in the last um, month, six weeks but certainly we're going to see it over the next year, is the amount of face masks that are ending up in the sea.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what
0: the impact of that's going to be.
1: I mean, the um, plastic producers have kind of had the laugh, last laugh there, haven't they? With uh, Yeah, the because last it was
0: free rain, reign rain to produce basically whatever you wanted Yeah, with, because of the global pandemic. And understandably, but zero thought had went into actually the disposal of these.
1: Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I've really, really learned over the years and, you know, it comes as a shock to quite a lot of people, but the plastic industry, I actually have a lot of time for them and they have supported me more than any other industry since day one with with Stanley, in fact, um, because it is their social responsibility to, to educate people. And like I said, the, th- the whole thing about Stanley is, you know... <laughs> The bag is not the villain in this. Essentially, it's our own fault for not disposing of it correctly. Now, I I wholeheartedly believe that much, much more money should and hopefully will get invested into the infrastructure of, of recycling. Um, but I, I don't believe that we can live without plastic, and it's something that I talk to kids in school about a lot. Um, it is such an important research, uh, resource for us, until we find something, I guess, that's a little bit better. But at this stage, it's the best that we have. In fact, plastic was initially invented because we'd essentially almost killed all of the sea turtles and we were running out of ivory. So to give you some perspective, elephants and sea turtles were saved because of the creation of plastic. And ironically, (laughs) sea turtles are are now almost... um, Threatened most by the creation of plastic in the long run, but I guess you don't have the foresight when when this sort of thing happens. but yeah, if you look at the history of plastic it's that uh, it was created with the best intentions and of course the drive for money, but it was created to replace um resources that that were running out massively um and you know there's also a lot of misconceptions in terms of. You know, if it's not plastic, then it's automatically better for the environment. That's not true. (laughs) That is definitely not true. You need to, you know, if you're going to advocate that, you need to look at each resource and really educate yourself on on what goes into making that. I mean, paper, for example, takes trees to make. But when you recycle paper, it takes a lot more energy to recycle paper and a lot more water and it creates um, a lot more offsets of heavy metals than plastic. Um, And we do have the technology to keep improving and and to create, you know, instead of having to keep creating from fresh, uh, we don't need to be using fossil fuels to to create plastic. Now we can use other things like, um, you know, um, sugar cane, for example, is one. Uh, there's, There's multiple different options that we can use. And um, we can even boycott all of that and use sewage to create a plastic substance. But what we have, what we need to remember is we've created a product which is essentially a throwaway item, but is absolutely indestructible. So it can't just be thrown away. It has to be used and only used really in a responsible way that we absolutely need it. And then it has a, it's been designed for an end of life. Um, but yeah, it's, I hope that, well I'm sure that every generation after us has learned from our mistakes um but it, you, you know, hope yeah but
0: yeah we, we we hope that that's the case yeah for sure. but
1: then at the same time what I I absolutely don't want is for us all to just and I guess I feel this a lot with going into schools and educating that I created the book hoping that it was going to educate teachers and parents at the same time because what I really really hate is the responsibility and the guilt and the panic and the pressure that is pushed onto children now I mean you see it with Greta um and her movement um Mm. it's a lot of panic for young people that are becoming wholeheartedly aware of all the environmental issues but seeing the older generations like our age group and above have have really not changed anything even though we know this (laughs) you know um, and that's that's a really tricky situation to navigate isn't it for all of us
0: yeah no it, it yeah it absolutely is and it is a if I think about me at primary school at five six years old which wasn't that long ago i'm not that old yet <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was a little bit of time ago. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but th- these kind of discussions never uh you know th- it wasn't really something that was discussed there certainly was nobody coming into the school uh, talking about environmental responsibility so on top of all the other things because most of the other things that you deal with as a kid i guess probably haven't changed that much um i mean technology has moved on a long way which means that uh, resources are way more accessible than they were when i was a little kid uh but I I would I would imagine if you were to ask even very small kids now they'll probably have somewhat of a handle on the human impact of the park.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I would think so. Yeah, yeah, they are. Is
0: that your feeling from speaking to kids in schools?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um I mean it it varies as well um between schools for sure um and between like areas. I I've really Um, sort of gone all over the UK to different schools, like even down in Cornwall, to the centre of London, to up in Scotland and and it definitely varies um, school by school and I think in a city it, it can be harder to connect children to these issues because i mean to want to protect the environment part of that comes with having the benefits of, of being out there in the wild in nature and experiencing it and and that's such such an important role in childhood um so you know um that's 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 something that i really do believe makes a difference but teachers also like god there there needs to be so much respect for teachers because they they honestly they make such effort in some places and such an impact um on these children from a young age and that sets them up for life really so yeah definitely like times are changing kids know a lot more but there's always a bit you know a bit more that we can do as adults to even build on that too
0: this kind of this kind of outreach that you've been doing uh in schools i mean i'd love to see more of it i think it's so important to like you're saying to connect kids to yeah. the the real world and and sort of you know, outside of the household that they and, and people that they might not be exposed to even within a school environment, but how uh, the issue with many of these outreach programs is how do you, how do you fund them? How do you fund the time for somebody to go and do what you're doing? So how have you managed to do it?
1: Um, well, I mean, put it this way: I don't own a house. <laughs> I um, I don't earn a lot of money doing what I do. I do it because I can't walk away from it that's the thing like I've tried but that shouldn't that shouldn't
0: be in the set like uh, <laughs> that takes somebody to uh you know make I mean i most good things are made with sacrifices, but that 's not a sustainable model If we really want to shape the minds of young people to forge a, a new path and a better future we, we need money yeah, to, absolutely. to help fund it
1: and it's not just i mean look i i i 'm lucky i cannot complain i've been very, very lucky and've i had a lot of support from scholastic, my publisher they 've been absolutely great um and you know they they help and Authors Abroad as well, like I'm slowly, slowly getting into a situation where what I do is slightly more sustainable. But I'm not going to lie, I've had to invest quite a lot of my own money. I've had to work, um, you know, just any old job for for stints just to then reinvest all of that into getting to these places, finding these stories and then then taking those back into schools. Um, But I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> There's nothing else on the planet that I would do, and also, you know, like my alternative was to stay in science, and and they're not earning much money either. It's it's a real issue. I mean, my YouTube channel is called Sarah's Real Job because my mum was always asking when I was going to get one. Um,
0: <laughs> you know, who wants a real job?
1: Exactly, exactly. But but you know, you've struck on something that's so important. Nothing is going to get us out of this situation other than understanding um, knowledge on how to adapt, how we're impacting things, how we can improve, and science is is so 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 important. But unfortunately, unless it's not, if unless it's a direct link to a monetary gain, because we just don't seem to value um ecosystems as as something that should have a monetary gain even you know do you know what i mean like basically
0: yeah they, we we need to value them for their, their intrinsic value rather than what we can get out absolutely. of them absolutely
1: yeah. and we don't unfortunately and our governments don't and you know everyone's in it for their own gain and unfortunately that's where conservation and science and ecotourism all these all these things they kind of dip out a little bit there and realistically they they should have the most funding um, especially knowing what we know um, about climate and about the way the planet's going. Um, but no, it's uh, it's something that needs to shift, definitely.
0: I, I think if there was a true appreciation at a governmental level of uh, what the cost of ecosystem services truly are, like the, uh, the, the problem is that we don't actually understand what the full knock-on effect of the implications of our actions are in many instances. But if we did... I think there would be a lot more money uh, funneled into it because it would it would save us economically e- economic hardship in the long term and uh, I think historically uh, humans as with the societies that we form we're very often more concerned about short term gain than uh, what the the long term benefit is going to be and and when we're talking about long term it's not decades we're talking hundreds and thousands of years mm.
1: Yeah, and I think that what we have lost and what society has lost in this consumeristic world where you can just walk into a supermarket and there you go, there's your chicken, your beef, whatever, it's all there to buy, there's your fish. You've no connection anymore to the ecosystem that it came from. You've no connection to the amount you're taking. Um, And we sort of, for the most part, sit humans aside from the food chain it's almost like we are above the animals on our own little playing field and not connected to them and and like you say like if people knew (laughs) if people only knew um yeah we would all be valuing that a lot higher than we do
0: yeah i wanted to i wanted to make sure i asked you about something um before we get to the end of the podcast which was some of the work that you were doing with shark research yeah and uh i think it was tagging sharks and also working with local fishermen mm-hmm. and this strange contradiction between people actually wanting to catch and drag sharks in with uh, with hook and line and the the work with the scientific community what was that that you were involved in there
1: yeah so so basically um i've always always been interested in the grey areas that aren't necessarily black and white and as you know you'll find a lot of them in the in the world of conservation um but shark shark fishing particularly um has has really interested me um I I was originally in um involved a little bit um in the tagging world I guess and the shark research world uh, with the start of my career so um I with that job there was a lot of fishing every day and then we'd catch the sharks we'd take measurements we'd put tags in depending on what the study was about and it was always for the the greater good of trying to protect various different habitats for these sharks um so I guess the concept of catching a shark um it wasn't something that was totally unnatural and totally foreign for me and I understood with that that there is a little bit of a a thrill involved in in fishing of course Um, And then my friend Hannah Med actually from American Shark Conservancy is out in Florida now and she's running a study which is very, very interesting. She's one of the first people that I'm aware of that can actually work directly with the, the, the recreational shark fishermen over there who are catching great hammerheads off the beach of Florida. Now, there's so much controversy involved around this. First of all, great hammerheads... Um, they're particularly vulnerable. Um, they, they can't buccal pump, which means that they have to be swimming all the time um, to get oxygen into their blood um and or,
0: or, sorry to interrupt you but are all sharks like that because no. i have this little thing in my head that all sharks have to continually swim no 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 Is this it's an old wives tale
1: uh yeah yeah so different species um have different adaptations some species such as a tiger shark that can sit in the waves can just sit on the bottom and basically open and close its mouth and push water over their gills um yeah so it depends whether they have a connection between the gills and the back of the mouth basically um but yeah it depends also on like how they add up um how they live so pelagic species like great white sharks they'll have to keep swimming their whole life for example to, to keep the oxygen in their in their blood um but yeah so she she had put herself in a very unique situation where she's Well, I guess to backstep, there is so much controversy about these hammerheads, about the survival rate. Um, So even though it's a catch and release fishing industry, um, there is a lot of controversy about whether or not these sharks are actually surviving. Um, And, you know, there's the shark diving industry who see the the sharks um, swimming around with hooks and line in the mouth, which obviously is not very nice to see. Um, But then also... There had been a few hammerheads that have washed up on the beaches of Florida and that automatically sort of created even more pressure um to, to ban recreational shark fishing. However, I don't, don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, um, especially with governments and 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 just the situation that's going on over there. So um Hannah's quite a logical person. Uh, she's she's a shark expert, and she basically was Able to build a relationship with the shark fishermen who absolutely are guarded and really do want to protect their industry because, you know, these guys have been doing it since 13, 12 years old um, and generations before them. For them, it's like it's their hobby. It's everything they love. And they really do believe that they do everything right and the sharks are released and they swim off and, and these other people are just out to get them. So Hannah um, is in a position where she's actually fitting tags on these sharks, satellite tags that um, stay on the shark for two weeks after the recreational uh, fisherman has, has caught it. Um, and they provide accurate data as to whether or not the sharks are able to survive afterwards. Um, She also takes information about how long the sharks are on the line, the type of bait, the conditions, um, all sorts of things, because obviously the longer you're fighting um, a hammerhead, the more energy it's burning. Um, Survival rate, we assume, may go down. Um, So I was lucky enough to go and sleep on the beaches of Florida with these uh, salty dog fishermen and really get to know them Um, and to spend some time with Hannah and learn more about that. But then I also... Um, met some some people from the other side of of things so I've met um Jim Abernathy who's a big um shark diver and shark tour operator in the area so he has a lot to gain from this industry um not happening and it, it, there's a, just so many strong feelings in, in each direction um so yeah uh it's, what, it's interesting.
0: What... Is the is the decline in in the hammerhead sharks that you're talking about have they linked that to recreational fishing or is there a, a bigger picture here and that's just a component of it?
1: We don't know. That's okay. the, that's the answer. Because
0: um, it seems like when you I mean is this when you say recreational this is people on the shore yeah, fishing this, this, with a rod and line.
1: Right, yes. Yeah. So basically at this point anybody could go out with a rod and reel um mm. and just stick it in and try the best to catch one of these sharks.
0: But no one was eating them.
1: Nobody's eating them; it's catch and release. No. Um, but the the problem is, it was and it is still re- really, very much a totally unregulated industry. And what what has happened since um, since I was out there filming is they released permits. People had to get a permit to do it, which just basically meant you fill in some form and give a little bit of money, and then you got one. And it was uh, it was a real indicator that actually there's a lot more people out on the beaches doing this than they ever realize um there's you don't need any training to be able to do this bear in mind like you catch these sharks in the middle of the night this is a four meter shark that you're catching the best time to catch it is in high swell um and you've got to then grab it grab it, a tail rope around the back of it um grab its dorsal in swell most of the people, as I said, are young when they start. That was a real shocker to me. Like I did not expect to be sat around the beach with like 14-year-olds, 17-year-olds, you know, and, and without any proper training or, you know, any, maybe not even a responsible adult there in some cases. Or even if you have a responsible adult, if they don't know what they're doing, it doesn't bring much to the table. Um, so, you know, for me, it was a bigger shocker, like all the possibilities of things that could go wrong. Um, so Hannah, like one of the key things of the study is is really to make recommendations because we know it's probably not going to get banned um and you know it may not need to get banned because actually it, these people, and it's the same with hunters across the board, quite often they have so much knowledge, they've gathered so many skills. for me, it would be a crying shame if you were to just totally outright ban these these sports rather than actually finding a way to link them because you know scientists I I went out catching sharks having having never caught shark in my life and that was suddenly part of my job like you're going out there with very few skills and learning on the job but I mean you've got these people that have all this knowledge that have you know gathered it generation to generation and and all this experience and if we just get rid of that it, you know we could actually use it to our advantage to actually protect the species um so yeah it's it's an interesting concept um and it's 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 something that i am still a little bit involved in um and it's fascinating yeah.
0: really fascinating because
1: yeah.
0: i don't know i have you know I, I fish and i put fish in my freezer i also hunt and put meat in my freezer yep. but i do have a hard time thinking about catching and releasing these very large sharks for no other purpose other than completely your own pleasure and that's not me saying i have take pleasure when i'm fishing or take pleasure when i'm hunting but at least uh it's well certainly with the 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 hunting and fishing that i do there is the intention is although i do release a lot of fish because they're, they're undersized um well, normally because they 're not big enough because i don 't have the skill to catch many big fish yeah. um, but i 'm normally fishing for trout or or less so salmon these days, but the intention is that i 'm putting something in the freezer ultimately at the end of the day, or um, you know I might be say it 's rabbit control you know that 's part of uh, population management for agricultural crops, or or pigeons, or whatever it might be. But here, it's very clear, very clearly, um, just completely a sport. It is for the enjoyment of the people who are catching them and then releasing them, putting these these animals under a huge amount of stress which is much they feel it much more the bigger the animal is and like you were saying the longer the fight the less chance that they're gonna have to actually survive so unless there's really a mechanism to harness this yeah. um desire that they have for this sport and funnel well, you know maybe that is the permit system that they now have so we're able to permit it and funnel that money into the conservation of the species. Yeah. But if that isn't in place, I have a really hard time with it because what purpose does it serve? It serves absolutely no purpose. It's just – it has a complete negative effect on the species. And I think that mm, harnessing the – uh, the fascination that people have, whether you agree with it or not, because I, I I do have a hard time with, with that type of fishing. Yeah, um, absolutely.
1: And I mean, listen. But
0: I can see where the benefit could lie if there was the mechanisms. Well,
1: you've got to, to look to back in history, research. right? So it's not that long ago that, that we were just harvesting the sharks. You know, you're doing all of yeah. this and they would drag it out onto shore, dangle it from a dock and be like, look, this is the amazing shark. And, you know, in some places still do that. Um, but times have changed and now that's frowned upon and now it's, it's catch and release instead. But times are changing still. And there's this opportunity to think, well, you know, that was all well and good, but now we know a bit more. Can we improve it further? And and that's where Hannah's at with this. Um, she's in a really unique position over there, just to, to give the chance the sharks the best possible chance of survival by making certain recommendations um, to government um, about how they can move forward on that. And and working with the fishermen. I mean, you kudos to them. Like they don't have to be a part of that, but but a lot of the people within that sport, they well, all the people in that sport, they want the sharks to survive because they want the sport to continue. So if there's a way of ensuring that the sharks definitely are surviving or changing the odd technique here and there, they are open to that for the most part. Most, I mean, you get good and bad people in every sport. Um, But then, you know, like it is further still, like how else can we make this actually worthwhile like offset it in a way that because I mean I'm not interested in, in going out and catching a, you know it doesn't appeal to me but obviously it still appeals to other people um is there a way that you can actually get something more out of this that could then in turn like you say whether it's monetization to protect species or whether it's um you know research is there something else that we can do to offset that if it's you know, because like I say, these things probably aren't going to get banned, especially in Florida, um, yeah. anytime soon. So, like, how do we further improve things?
0: I suppose the the parallel to that would be if I'm looking closer to home, most rivers in Scotland and actually up and down a lot of the UK now, it's uh, mandatory catch and release for salmon. Yeah. Uh, because of the decline of the population, you know, over the last fifty to well, fifty sixty years. And so you still have people who will uh, go and happily pay their money for the chance of catching a salmon, knowing that they'll never be able to take it home and they'll never be able to eat it. And they're very careful about putting it back. I'd say largely speaking, people who fish for salmon are fairly well educated in the handling procedure and with the knowledge that they want to catch a fish. Uh, play it as quickly as possible so that they're not uh, so it's not a protracted period where they're fighting the fish and then never take it out the water unhook it and put it back i mean clearly that is only because we enjoy there's this i don't know deep seated very primitive part of us that enjoys the feeling of catching a fish uh and i totally totally understand that because i do it too
1: yeah
0: um but it it's on the face of it you think well that serves absolutely no purpose and all you're doing is increasing the risk that that fish that you've now caught is not going to survive to spawn however a lot of the money that goes into the fisheries trusts and the fisheries boards that pay for the biologists within those river systems Mm -hmm. is funded by those fisher those Mm -hmm. those people who come and fish yeah and there now you can see the circles okay well yeah, maybe there is a certain percentage of mortality, and I think we fairly well understand what that is with salmon now. With catch and release, that is worth it. Like, we're, that is a price we are willing to pay as a society in order to fund the other work that is going on.
1: Yeah, and look, there's more to it than even that. I mean, you hit up you hit upon it a little bit with you know we we have this innate desire as humans. I think a lot of people do to, to go out and catch things. It's the animalistic instinct. Um, Yes, it may serve no purpose because they then have to release it, but the desire is, is there in a lot of people. And it does sort of light a little internal fire. I think when people go out and, and it's the the thrill of the, you know, trying to outwit this creature, (laughs) I guess, to some extent, but look, if that, also, being out there in nature, standing on that river, holding that fishing rod—I mean, my dad was a fisherman, my uncle's was is a fisherman, my brother's a fisherman. I know what their catch rate is; it's absolutely diabolical. They, <laughs> you know, they they shoot me for saying that, but but you know, for the most part, what they are doing is connecting to the wild, and they are—you yeah. know—they are absolutely loving being somewhere that then wholeheartedly they are going to want to protect for future generations.
0: Absolutely. And so that
1: also plays a, a key point in it. You know, we could all back off and we could all say, oh, that's wrong. This is terrible. That's wrong. But unless for me, it's like poachers make the best groundskeepers. These people understand the balance of nature better than other people that have never experienced that. And and the, that knowledge and that skill is still very important, and it's something that needs to be passed on, and it needs to be kept, so that we don't totally. I mean, we already have overshot carrying capacity for the most part, but but we need to understand. We need to get rid of this consumeristic mindset, and we need to really understand our part in the ecosystem, and you know where how much we can take, what we what we can take, and and noticing patterns of where things aren't coming back, and they're not catching because. You know, it's easy for, for people in in the towns, in the cities or, you know, anywhere really to say, oh, well, I really don't like people going out and doing this for the fun of it. But then they might still go home and eat a steak or something. And, and <laughs> yeah. you, you know, like there's everything's a bit more gray than we ever give it credit for. Um, yeah, and-
0: I, I'm very much a, a big believer in Uh, obviously harnessing technology so that we're causing the the minimal impact that we can on the planet and the environment around us but also being cognizant of the fact that we have this incredible wild resource around us and we are a part of it and because we are part of it we can also play that role which is to use it as other animals use one another and but we have the knowledge to be able to do it sustainably so we can look at our deer populations and we can harvest a certain proportion of them and they will the 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 herds there will will potentially get bigger and stronger depending on uh, depending on how we're we're harvesting them and how how we're managing them and having that knowledge that we can uh, use Wild resources in a sustainable manner, I think, is is an incredibly responsible position to take. Uh, but I think we, in some um, in some parts of of society, we want to move away from that. We where we are not taking anything from the wild environment at all, and, and it can sometimes be mixed messages because we're continually talking about how we're over extracting, and that is uh, uh, true in in so many cases. But there is also it is also true that by using wild resources in a, in a responsible and ethical manner, whether that be venison or even timber, you know we have a way to live in a more sympathetic way in, in the landscape that is around us. Yeah. Uh, and I think to not use it is a, is a big mistake.
1: Yeah. And, because and it and means that we
0: have to rely on other sources.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, coming back to plastic versus other materials – we are quite a lazy species you know and if somebody greenwashes something or somebody says you know this is really good most of the time we'll never question it and and i think that's a big problem it's often if something sounds easier and it sounds like you know this this is a very simple fix nothing is Ever simple. That is one thing that my career has taught me. There is no such thing as simple, and there's no such thing as like an easy fix. And if it sounds like an easy fix, it's because you're not understanding the problem properly. Um, and, and I think that you know, it's not that there's a right and wrong way of doing things, but there has to be a communication between everyone involved in every different industry and a respect, I guess, there for you know. The same goes with fishermen and with hunters. There can be a lot of bloodlust and a lack of understanding. You know, you can just get totally hooked on the sport and only care about the one species you're hunting and and still not understand how the rest of the ecosystem um, is adapted around it. But all of this also comes down to communication, and that's between people in the industry and, and outside of that. Um, and sharing knowledge and sharing expertise and and i think that that's so so important moving forward
0: so sarah i could carry on digging into this with you for for another two hours probably (laughs) but i I want to touch on something just before we, we wrap up which is I think it's the most recent films that you've put out on on YouTube, which is your big predator expedition. Tell me how how that came about, and uh, I guess also the name of your YouTube channel, just so people can go and watch these.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so as I said, the YouTube channel is Sarah's real job because my mum was always asking when I get one. Um, yeah, uh, but the and you're
0: like I don't, I never want a real job mom, so if that's <laughs> well, okay with you. <laughs>
1: it's actually I would say it's more real than than any of the other jobs I've ever done. I just don't get paid much for it. <laughs> (laughs) 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 um but yeah it's um it it, the big predator expedition um was about looking at a few different gray areas um so the shark diving industry i looked at um and i went out on a on a shark dive out there in florida and had had a look about how you know basically feeding sharks and chumming sharks is affecting their behaviour and how that also can have a bit of a knock-on effect in the food chain. Um, I also um, looked at snakes um, and I was looking at at reptiles, I guess, in the Everglades um, and how they uh, are being affected by the the amount of roads going through there as well and traffic um, and then invasive species and then also um, looked at... um, alligators and nuisance gators um and that whole concept and a few other things too really but it was just it was it was just sort of going out meeting different industry professionals or experts spending some time with them getting a little bit too up close and personal in some cases with these it animals. Looked incredible. Yeah, and uh, put myself out lying underneath. My was it
0: room. an alligator you were lying under?
1: Yes. Yeah. That, that's yeah. That was <laughs> a, a wild caught, but habituated. They tell me um, alligator. So,
0: <laughs> they tell you that until they add another. It adds another set of scars up your other arm.
1: Yeah, and I mean the thing is, when you've been you've been burned by these wild animals, you're wholly aware of how sharp teeth really are. Um, so uh, that was actually I think, the most nervous i've ever looked on a video in my in my career so far if you watch that is genuine concern about this little ambush predator that's floating along giving me no uh, no behavioral cues whatsoever they're so cool i'd love to do so much more with crocodiles and alligators that i have this terrible uh, morbid curiosity slash adrenaline junkie side of me that's just always wanting to go for these things that scare the absolute poo
0: out Mm. of me well yeah there you know one of the best books i've ever read about crocodiles was written in the 70s and it took place in the 60s and it was a biologist uh looking at crocodile populations in lake rudolph which is on the southern end of uh, ethiopia it's called eyelids of mourning it's out of print long out of print now but you can you can still get copies and if you're into crocodiles it's by far the best book i've ever read on the species and probably even as I haven't read a lot of the more modern ones, to be fair, but it's the first book I've read. But I would be surprised if there's anything that comes close to matching that.
1: I, I very much doubt it because I mean the research, even looking at, at how Shark Lab set up in the first place, the things that they could get away with in those days, you never get away with now. So I imagine there's. Oh, these
0: guys were insane. Yeah, I, was, I mean, it was they, I, it's almost like they 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 weren't worried about their own mortality. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah but i mean the the information the the stories that that they've got you'll never get again so you can't really I Me, mean, you've just got to use that, haven't you? But um yeah, I'll probably look that up to be honest, because it sounds right up my street. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you, you curiosity. Yeah.
0: Um, Sarah, it's been fantastic to speak to you today. I've, I've, I've We've been trying to hook this up for quite some time, but uh, which you think would be easy in lockdown, but then lockdown started to lift, and then we both got busy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I'm so pleased that we managed to record, and uh, I hope at some point in the future I, I would get to meet you in person. I think it would be cool to go and dive with you or something. Yeah. I, I haven't dived for quite a while, but I, I mean. i've I love to free dive i just haven't scuba dived ah, but I, I love it
1: maybe um maybe i can make a trip up into scotland when they uh, hey that
0: sounds like a good plan yeah
1: yeah we'll have
0: to maybe basking sharks time. on the west coast that would Ooh, be amazing yes
1: yes i've only ever seen i
0: got a friend who York. runs a charter off the west coast for basking sharks
1: done sold i'm there let me know the date. <laughs> <laughs> tremendous
0: are you um uh, there was a whole other thing i wanted to ask you about but so maybe i'll have to save that for another time which was the the work that you were doing um or the the videos that you, you were working on with geothermal in Iceland, Iceland Is that yeah. Stuff I wondered out if yet? you
1: were gonna mention that. Yeah. Um we are releasing that um in autumn winter campaign now. Okay, yeah. So we're it's, still
0: a little way away.
1: Yeah, it's a little way away. You can always have me back on for that. Um but no, yeah. I'm very, very excited about that particularly um i think it's probably one of the we'll best just things g- that I've give ever me played.
0: the give me the a brief overview so we can give people a, a taster of what that is and then yeah let's we, we let's talk again later in the year when the actual video is out and we can talk about sure, it sure
1: brilliant yeah brief overview i went to iceland with my camera guy just before lockdown commenced
0: there's a shark man Dan, is shark it shark
1: man Dan, who yeah. who has the
0: coolest <laughs> instagram name ever
1: yeah the two of us went over there um we were looking at how climate change, you can visibly look at it. We were looking at the glaciers. We met some experts. Um, and, but the main reason behind that trip was actually to go to Hell Shetty and to learn about um, this technology that involves capturing carbon um, emissions as they're released into the atmosphere and actually sinking those back down into basalt rock where they bond with the rock and are essentially stored forever um so it was very very exciting stuff um mix that with a bit of ice diving and the rest of it uh yeah it's going to be quite a fun video I think.
0: yeah your your, <laughs> your pictures looked amazing the basalt's super interesting because it was a paper out uh only a few weeks ago that was talking about the amount of carbon that could be uh taken out of the atmosphere if we put uh, crushed basalt on all agricultural fields it around the world It is
1: the coolest and it was rock. like
0: 200 was it 200 200 million tons a year I, yeah. ha- I might have to look it up and insert it yeah. in, in this part of the podcast because I, I kept the paper to, and I have read it but my memory is not good yeah enough to remember the I mean
1: from from our trip what we learned was there's enough basalt rock just in Iceland alone to store the entire world's carbon emissions
0: wow um,
1: so the potential and the process is, is
0: fascinating the actual science behind how it works is yeah. fascinating
1: yeah all my friends think that I'm a crazy geologist now but it's actually <coughs> just basalt rock that I know anything about <laughs> But it is amazing. It's so, so interesting. And and just such a positive story. I mean, it's maybe not the actual um, only answer. It will have to be this mixed in with, you know, reducing consumerism and a few other different carbon um, technologies. But it is just so nice because we, we've had, I feel like, a couple of years of absolute doom and gloom. Um, it's nice to feel like we can and we will fix these problems. Yeah.
0: Yeah no it's you uh, you're right it will never be a single thing it's not going to be everybody driving electric cars it's not going to just be spreading basalt on our uh, agricultural crops uh, or agricultural land it's going to be a combination of a lot of things and and a, and a change in mindset from people like every yeah. single person on the planet and i i feel like it, it it it's definitely started i think there's no doubt that uh we are way more conscious than we used to be of uh, you know the um, anthropogenic effects
1: absolutely um,
0: as as they stand right now I I think one of the great difficulties is that it's fine for us to to talk about the different measures that we will take to, to mitigate our impacts but how can you expect somebody who has nothing and is just concerned about how do they feed themselves tomorrow Yeah, um, and- to, to, to take any of that into account. And, and also, and I brought this up on a podcast before, when we're talking about climate change, these very uh, rural communities uh, that are basically living hand to mouth, they have not really contributed no. in any meaningful way to climate change. Yes, there's still a a, a, a big use of resources, and a, and a lot of these communities sit within these resources that we uh, we, we hold up, like the Amazon rainforest or, or the areas in, in, in um, Central Africa, which have the most incredible biodiversity on the planet. Uh, but when we're just talking about climate change, these communities haven't contributed to it you might as well ignore their contribution because it's it's negligible it's big industry um you know in the last 150 200 years that has really contributed to it which has been yeah. the more wealthy parts of the world
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, the sad thing is that those that haven't contributed that live in these areas are often the ones that are absolutely at the forefront of all of the consequences of it as well. Um, but, I mean, we are a very simple creature, you know, we're basically bald monkeys for the most part. And, and it has to be made as simple as possible if we are going to change. And like you say, that's where it comes down to infrastructure government technology and and just basically making it so that our lives run in a way that you know it's not necessarily every individual that's going to have to think of end life of a product but our system is is made for that now and that's the only way you're going to create lasting change it's it's just got to be like almost the only option
0: <laughs> sarah thank you so much where can people find you um on all the socials and websites
1: yeah so um sarah's real job for youtube sarah's real job for instagram um sarah v roberts for twitter and sarah roberts official for my website um i say that so hesitantly i had an agent that made me put the official on the <laughs> end and gradually well at least you know at least you know it's back but yeah i mean if you just <laughs> search sarah's real job or search sarah roberts and any sharp bear or anything i'll probably pop up you'll probably be able <laughs> <It'll> to <go laughs> up. yeah
0: that's great <laughs> thanks very much sarah i hope to i hope to to see you swimming with basking sharks at some point
1: yeah absolutely you've you've sold me (laughs) thank you so much for having me
0: thanks for listening tune in next week when we take another walk into the wilderness